Welcome to episode 12 of the Welding Codex. This is a podcast for those who want to learn more about the technical side of welding. We try and talk about welding codes, welding defects, metallurgy, and subjects along those lines. In this episode, welding engineers and CWIs, Peter Kinney and Gary Pace, continue the conversation about AWS D1.1 structural welding code, steel. This episode covers Clause 5 and should hopefully finish it up. Um which covers fabrication control of distortion and shrinkage, tolerance of joint dimensions, dimensional tolerances of welded structural members, weld profiles, repairs, weld cleaning, caulking, and arc strikes, as well as the tables at the end of the clause. Anyhow, thanks for joining us. Note, Pete and Gary bounce back and forth between code editions 2015 and 2020 during the course of this episode. So we apologize beforehand if the podcast gets a little off track sometimes. Before we get going, a little word from our sponsors. If you're on a budget and looking for an affordable online training course for the AWS Certified Welding Inspector exam, visit train-eng.com, T-R-A-I-N minus sign E-N-G.com, and check out the online courses for Part A, general knowledge, and part B, hands-on inspection. We also have some buffet-style options for our CWI review courses. If you don't want to take the whole 10-part package, let's say you just need to brush up on metallurgy and weld defects, that's an option. You can pick those. You can pick and choose. You don't have to take the whole course. So we also have options where you can just do questions. I think it's called the review question bonanza. And just hit the practice questions. If you like what we're doing here, feel free to make a PayPal donation on my website, texasweldingengineering.com. Also check out my YouTube channel for the material that's posted on that platform. Once again, thanks for listening. Welcome to the Welding Codex and our never-ending grind through AWS D1.1. We're still in... Clause 5, which is fabrication. So we're going to look at 519, splices. That's where we're going to pick up. Pete, what do you got on splices? I'm going to flick this booger in your direction and see what we got. Well, basically a splice is where you weld two components together uh, or maybe a built-up member. Uh, so it's if you need an 80-foot beam, you may not be able to buy an 80-foot beam, but you can probably buy 240s. So 240s become become an 80. Um, a lot of times, shop splice locations, they're um, sh- shown on the sh- shop drawings, and you're going to have to have a couple of splices. You're going to have to splice, to, if we're talking about like a, either a built-up eye girder or a, a rolled uh, beam, you're going to have a splice for the flange. You're going to have a splice for the, for the two flanges and the web. And you can either have them um, right in parallel or you can offset them uh plate girders are sometimes done with an offset splice uh that that can be done and we got two different we got a our cyclically loaded where that's where we got to start applying our fatigue requirements when we have then the other ones are basically all static and with the, the fatigue stress that's something that's getting bounced on or the wind or whatever so it's a whole nother different category of fabrication, construction, design, whatever. And a lot of that falls into the lap of the engineer and the design engineer. A lot of times on our end, we're not calculating those. We're just 
following the rules. Oh, this is cyclically loaded. All right, we're going to follow these rules for the splices. So, um, you know, and it like it, one of the things here, 519.2 member splices, long girders or girder sections may be made by welding subassemblies. Splices between sections of rolled beams or built-up girders shall be made in a single transverse plane when practicable. So it's like Pete said, you got a couple of different variations that you can go on, but generally you try and do it in a single plane if you can pull it off. So correct. Uh, I think with a rolled girder, I mean, or a rolled beam, I mean, it's it's it would be a lot more work to make the splices have in in multiple locations, where you're splicing the flange here and the web here and the flange somewhere else. That, that's a lot of work on on a on a rolled girder or excuse me on a plate girder it may be it may be easier but uh i don't have a whole lot more to say about um splices on that one there gary all right let's move on into control of distortion and shrinkage 520 it's 520 in the 2015 version and it would be 720 in the 2020 version so that's right pete go ahead with control of distortion and shrinkage well so the first one in the well, the first two are probably the most important. It's sequencing it and having kind of coming up with a procedure. So with a lot of things with distortion, welds pull whenever they solidify. The The metal becomes, um, as it goes from a, a liquid, it expands to a solid, it, it, it shrinks and it pulls parts together. So like an easy way would be is offsetting your, your part with a little bit of lean to it and uh, leaning opposite of where you're putting your first bead on. When that first bead weld bead goes on, it pulls it straight. Welding on one side, then jumping to the other side and welding it. Tacks, uh, putting tack welds all over the place, uh, help to, to hold the, the member a little more rigid so it doesn't move. Those are all the kind of ex- examples of kind of procedural, a little sequencing. Sequencing might be is where you build up from parts in a small parts. You make sub-assemblies then because you can balance the weld easily, and then they go into big assemblies. Going around uh, what's called the neutral axis, which I think might be a little difficult to explain uh, without a picture. But the easiest way is if you have a, gr- uh, a beam uh, or a girder, that's equal on all sides, right down the middle is the neutral axis. If you weld, the closer you weld to the, to the, to the neutral axis, the less your distortion is. But if we take, let's say, a 10-inch beam that's the same on both sides, and then all of a sudden we put a 1-inch cover plate on it, that neutral axis is now moving up towards that 1-inch plate. So you sometimes you got to be careful on, on that. And if you build sub-assemblies and you kind of keep trying to keep things around the neutral access, uh, your your overall distortion will be less because there's less pull on it. Uh, here it says contractor responsibility. The contractor is supposed to figure out how they can sequence it uh, and deal with their, their it, things will shrink. Basically, it's saying you need to know that it will happen. Items where you have a lot of, or shrinkage could be really bad, or distortion, you got to have a written... Uh, sequence for it. Uh, I, I helped do one of these one time, not on actually on a structure like a building or something, but it was actually a rail, uh, like, like the engine of a rail car, uh, or the, the front, the front, uh, 
not just like the piston kind of stuff, but it was the whole frame of the rail car and the body and whatnot. And it was pretty interesting on how to jump around to make all that work. Uh, and in piping, kind of get a little off, off just structural, but it would be applicable, is knowing how much your welds shrink is is a good way to know how to help defeat some of the shrinkage. Especially if you're tying in between two existing components, maybe you need to either open that root gap up a little bit more or make that part a little longer to begin with and kind of pry it apart to get it in there. Because you know when you weld it, you're going to have an eighth of an inch of uh, contraction. And you've now, you put a distortion pushing it apart, you weld it, now pulled it together. Welding up wagon wheels is uh, another hard one because everything wants to pull in. Well, and it it gets after, you know, contractor responsibility. The next one is 520.4, weld progression. So if you've got a plan and you know you don't just weld the hell out of one side and then jump over to the other side and expect everything to be perfect, you know, this is, you, you've got to have a general plan. Sometimes you backstep weld, you skip weld, depending on what you got going on. You weld on one part and then you come back to another area and or you have welders on different sides of the part welding at the same time. I mean, there's a lot of different strategies you can utilize to um, defeat or, I guess, control distortion and shrinkage. And it, a lot of it is skill of the craft. This is things where you got to talk to some dude that's been welding since he was 17, and he knows how these things are going to pull. Or, you know, I mean, you can. We've got half a dozen you know, paragraphs here talking about distortion and shrinkage. And there's guys out there that weld these girders that know exactly how they're going to pull. But it's it's like catching a baseball or something. They just know where that damn thing's going to be. So Yeah, e- exactly. Like, I mean, do you offset the, I mean, let the, let's say you're welding up a heavy flange. How many times do you have, can you put a bead on one side before you got to sit there and flip it and weld the other side? Or can you... Uh, prop it up a little bit where when the weld contracts, it'll pull up the tail end. Exactly. A lot of it is just pure experience. The one thing to help though is uh, back in the, I think it was in the sixties, Disney made a cartoon about uh, Mr. Shrink. You can find it on YouTube. That, that'll, uh, that'll teach uh, shrinkage stresses and how to deal with them to, uh, to an elementary kid. Uh, highly recommend seeing it. Yeah, can't go wrong with a cartoon, man. One of the best learning tools I <laughs> I can soak up information from. Exactly. The the last two uh, in there is minimize restraint. If something's going to move around and be floppy, don't hold it back. Let it move around. That's basically what, uh, I guess, 525 or in the, the newer one, it's 720.5. Uh, and then the last one is temperature limitations. And this is talking about when you got severe uh, shrinkage restraint. And basically, it's once you start welding, keep welding it. Because as soon as, sometimes if you get a little bit of weld metal in something, let's say we got a heavy a heavy flange or somewhere, I mean, you have multiple things coming in and you get the root bead in or maybe one or two passes but your ligament is still really thin comparably to the heavy sections you're welding well once it once it cools down it's going to start seeing a lot of stress and it may be enough to like basically crack it and pull it apart so this is basically once you start don't stop weld it up Um, that's that's basically what that's saying and 
I'm going to say severe shrinkage restraint is not like a common thing you run into every day. Uh, unless that's just your business line, the weld, the unweldable kind of things for people. That's an oddity as opposed to uh, every day. Right. And so, like you say, something to keep in mind. And, and you're going to know if it's a, a big red flag type of shrinkage restraint or something like that, where it's like, all right, it's it's not one inch welds. It's big stuff, multiple inches, and you just got to go and keep going. So. 521, tolerance of joint dimensions. Pete, you got it. All right. All right. So we got fillet weld assemblies, um, which is probably, I'm guessing, probably the most common fillet weld, or excuse me, the most common weld we have in uh, in the D1 uh, one world. And what it basically says is this whole section here, for materials less than three inches in thickness, our root opening, when you put that one, let's say if it was a, a plate on top of another plate and you got one, one standing up vertical, that vertical plate that's going to get what, fillet welded down to it, you have a maximum, your, your maximum root opening cannot exceed 3 sixteenths. However, it can be a sixteenth of an inch and you don't have to do anything. But if it's above a sixteenth of an inch to 3 sixteenths of an inch, you need to increase it. So if we got a, a 5 sixteenths fillet weld, welding these two plates together and you got a 16th inch gap you don't have to do anything free pass click 200 dollars. if it's an eighth of an inch gap you need to add an eighth of an inch on so now your 5 16th fillet weld now became a 7 16th um if if it's 3 16th it would become a half so it could be get real big real fast uh, when you're dealing with heavy plates uh, or like big jumbo uh, sections that are three inches or greater, you you can you get if you can't get it after straightening or moving things around, you can get five sixteenths, uh, but you got to put some backing in there. And what I've normally seen for that is subarc uh, flux has been a good one to put in there, or you can also weld it up, weld up the backing and basically make it for something that the fillet weld can bite into. I, I swear I've mainly seen this is on uh, big girders where you have plate and the tolerances for A6 uh, allow some waviness and you got um, your web going on your, on your flange and you may need to build up that area to allow to still meet that 516 uh, requirement. That's, uh, that's, that's the main thing that that, uh, addresses right there and this is kind of some of the stuff we're talking about here is it's a lot easily a lot more easily explained if we had pictures or cartoons or you know some kind of diagram and could sit down but we didn't this is a podcast it's all audio so we really don't have the ability to give you a good picture so we apologize but it is what it is so we're trying to explain it the best we can but anyways pete i think hit it pretty well there so i'm not going to chime in and undo his tapestry of quality work there all right well the the next one is fang surfaces uh either five or seven twenty one 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 uh this is basically saying this is for plug and slot welds we get our here we still get a freebie of one sixteenth um when when we go above that for these welds, because remember you're transmitting everything through through that that plug uh, plug or slot weld area, 
So keeping things really tight is is really really important. You need to get approval of the engineer. Uh, that's it's anything above a sixteenth. If you can't get it into conformance by moving around, swapping end for end, or uh, whatever you basically got to write it up on. This is what the issue is. This is how we feel we want to fix it and submit it. Filler plates, uh, like which would be like if you want to put a little shim in there or something, that's only when it's allowed by the engineer. And you still got to do it in conformance with um, 411 in the 2020. And what is that in the in the 2015 their code there, Gary? The last part, uh, we if you're going to use shims, you got to do it in conformance with mine. It's 411. Um, 211, so that'd be 411. Yeah, exactly. So basically, you got to come up with a solution, send it to the engineer for pr- uh, approval. Now we're moving on to uh, PJP groove welds, and here we basically can't have uh, more than three sixteenths, except for here again, three inches or greater in thickness. Um, on, on that one, our magic number of five sixteenths comes back. So we do get, I mean, leeway, uh, but it's it's held at uh, three sixteenths on on uh, PJPs unless you got heavy stuff and then it's bigger. And that gets back to the caveat there: you, if you're going to use five sixteenths, maybe use provided suitable backing is used, and the final weld meets the requirements for weld size. So that gets back to using the, that backing of iron powder or flux or um, some similar material to weld that up. So you can't just go, you know, hork it in there on a 516th. You got to have some suitable backing. Correct. Correct. And, and I've actually, I've never used uh, iron powder uh, for, for anything. I have heard some stories of it, but uh, Subarc Flux is the, the one I've normally seen used. Um, I think one is it's relatively cheap and easy to easy and readily available. Um, 521.3 butt joint alignment. Parts to be joined at butt joints shall be carefully aligned where the parts are effectively restrained against bending due to eccentricity in alignment. The offset from the theoretical alignment shall not exceed 10% of the thickness of the thinner part joined or an eighth inch, whichever is smaller. In correcting misalignment in such cases, the parts shall not be drawn into a greater slope than one-half of an inch in 12 inches. Measurement of the offset shall be based upon center line of parts unless otherwise shown on the drawing, which is clear as mud, right? So this exactly. That's the one you're going to have to read a couple of times, and it basically just gives you, you know, the, the number on your offset. So... 10% of the thickest part or the thinner, 10% of the thickness of the thinner part joined or an eighth of an inch, whichever, whichever is smaller. So you're not going to get a hell of a lot of misalignment allowed here. It's either Correct. 10% of that thickness or it's an eighth of an inch. Correct. So what this is, if you got basically, let's say you're welding up two, uh, two one inch plates and you butt them up to each other. You can't exceed 10%, uh, either, I mean, a tenth of an inch, uh, basically, or a eighth. An eighth is a little bigger than a tenth of an inch. So you're going to be held to the tenth of an inch. And that is of the two plates meeting up to each other. 
So, but if we changed that to, let's say, to we had, for some reason, a quarter-inch plate tying into that face of that one-inch plate, 10% of a quarter-inch is almost nothing. So we don't have a whole lot of alignment to, to play around with for those not to match up. So we can correct it. It gives us some guidance for how do we correct this where we can't have a slope so greater than a half inch and 12 inches. So this would be if we were to, uh, on that, let's say that quarter inch, uh, little, little weld, uh, quarter inch plate to the, to the one inch thick plate, we can't be adding weld metal that'll produce or have the part bent out of alignment more than a half inch and 12. That's, uh, that can get a little, a little difficult. And this is all based on the center line here. We're just using some plate as examples, but if you start to have channels tying in each other or I-beams, uh, offset on that is starts to become a little more uh, noticeable and where you can have um, issues in tying the two up because now the shapes aren't lining up at all in multiple uh, planes. Gets back to read it. If you got issues, ask a friend, you know. Draw it out, take a look, number crunching and Oh, I say oh, the the commentary also always look back in the back of the book. There there may or may not be commentary for that section. Uh, that is something that is a little, a little more unique to the AWS codes is they have they have commentary and a lot of times people's questions are answered very easily just by going to the back uh, and and looking up. Not every part uh, of the book has or every uh, clause has a commentary, but a lot of them do. Um, now we're going down. What do we got next there, Gary? Groove dimensions? Groove dimensions. We got non-tubular cross-section variations uh, with the exclusion of electro slag and electro gas welding and with the exception of 520, the root opening in excess of those allowed in a figure, the dimensions of the cross-section of the groove weld joints, which vary from those shown on the detailed drawings by more than these tolerances shall be referred to the engineer for correction. For non-tubular cross-section variations, and it, this doesn't count electro slag, you go look at this chart, it's going to tell you, all right, this is this is what's allowable in this figure 5.3. We're going to cover the figures later on in this um, podcast. Yes, because they're, they're all uh, uh, shoved in the back of, the, of each uh, clause now. It's a little harder to... They handle both uh, at the same time. And then we've got, you know, 521.42 correction. Root openings greater than those allowed in 521.41, but not greater than twice the thickness of the thinner part or three quarters of an inch, whichever is less, may be corrected by welding to acceptable dimensions prior to the joining the parts by welding. So what's that telling us, Pete? You spread some butter on it. Yep, you just build it up. You get your your good welder and you get a stack of filler material and you just build it up and grind it and clean it and follow all the appropriate rules. Keep people in the loop on what you're doing. Build that thing up. Add yourself a little bit of material. Clean it up and go from there. Correct. And and if it's bigger, we got to get the approval of the engineer on that one. And that all gets back to the, you know, we talked five podcasts ago or whatever, five episodes ago or whatever it is, the engineer's got the superpower. If he says you can build it up three inches and he's done the calcs, then do it. It's on him. And if he says, nope, I'm not letting you put an eighth of an inch of material on here, bad juju, bad hoodoo, 
then that's the end of that too. So a lot of this falls back on the engineer and keeping them in the loop on what you've got going and what direction you're going to go with this. Gouged grooves, grooves produced by gouging shall be in substantial conformance with groove profile dimensions. Okay, so that gets us back to these figures. Um, suitable access to the root shall be maintained. Yeah, so this, so what this is, when, you, when you're... Uh, well, now there, there's there's multiple methods now of gouging. I mean, you, before you had straight up carbon arc, uh, but now I mean you have plasma gouging. Uh, basically, when you're when you're doing gouge gouging, try to make it a nice consistent gouge to allow welding to facilitate the the welding of it. That's basically what this is saying, and try to make the gouges similar to those those figures um, the better you can make your gouging the less grinding you do the cheaper it is if you're going to remove it yeah like you say kind of keep it to a minimum because that's just time is money on that stuff exactly um, alignment methods members to be welded shall be brought into the correct alignment and held in position by bolts clamps wedges guy lines struts and other suitable devices or by tack welding until Welding has been completed. The use of jigs and fixtures is recommended where practicable, suitable allowances shall be made for warpage and shrinkage. Everything in there, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it because that's when I used to work out at the Hanford site. It was skill of the craft. It's like me telling a, you know, coaching basketball and then telling them how to dribble a damn thing. You, you, you need to understand this. So there's Correct. a lot of this stuff that is just beyond the scope of the inspector or um, the engineer, the, it's the skill of the craft. You know how to do this. You need to use your weapons, tools, accoutrements to get that aligned. And I'm not going to walk you through it and babysit you. And unless it just looks like it's an abject disaster, that's on you. So Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, dogs and wedges, uh, the wind tower industry, we'd use we call like big spiders to be on the inside to keep uh, the towers round when they're laying on the ground. Building bridges, we'd have these things called girder makers, and we'd squeeze the web and the flange together. So, I mean, there, there's lots of ways uh, to to make all this happen. And there's, there's it is, scale the craft. I like it, Gary. Yeah, that was... That was the card they used to play out there at Hanford. It's like, no, we don't we don't cover this skill of the craft. A, a journeyman iron worker should know how to get us to this point. We shouldn't have to put that into the, you know, write it out on and babysit them and chew their food for them. No, this is it. So, um, five twenty-two dimensional tolerances of welded structural members. Okay, we're gonna do a fast pass through this, and because a lot of this is just it's it's going to be it would be really difficult to go through all of this i mean we can read it and but without having an example or um some drawings or like we said before some cartoons to work through um it would just get ugly us trying to describe a lot of this stuff and then correct it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of measurements and what what i would basically say here is one is Depending on how valuable what you are building is, uh, you may need to look at, I mean, having measuring tapes traceable to NIST, good, or maybe, I mean, lazy, laser measurement devices, or you could be using string lines and tape measures. There's lots of ways to go through this, but it's basically a lot of measurements, and then 
some math associated with it. If you're not too keen on it, um, find a friend, do it the best you can, spin it up the food chain, and let higher powers be uh, start to address it. But it's uh, a lot of this is all done as shop uh, values. If you are building up um, like the members in the shop, you're doing a pre-erection or whatnot, that's where a lot of this can come into play. Um, where you can also get bit is if your sub-assemblies or your sub-parts are all within tolerance, but you have stacking of tolerances, you may be out when you build the whole thing. So that's just some stuff to watch. Uh, and I think, what is that, Gary? That applies to... Wow, 722 is a long one. So we got a lot of a lot of beam and camber. We got sweep, web yep. flatness. We got a couple yep. different web flatnesses uh, depending on if it's statically loaded or situationally loaded. But these are all kind of where you got to do a lot of measurements and a lot of math. And this is where also it talks about it. distortion can come and start to bite you on these. One thing that I do want to point out, and it's called uh, – going to be there it's going to be 522.65 in the old one in the 2015 or 722.65 in the 2020 is here it's called architectural consideration if you're building something that has a lot of exposed steel or members be real careful and look through the contract documents and the drawings to see if there are different requirements for things that are exposed in the bridge world uh, you have what's called fascia girders and they can have uh, tighter restrictions for the girder right next to it on the inside of the bridge because people see it and the uh, driving public doesn't want to see a girder with, I guess, an oil can dent in it from uh, distortion. So just be careful on that because that could be – everything could be within what the rest of the D11 says, but then uh, the contract documents has something else that's more restrictive and now you got to do a lot of heat straightening or something uh, to make it happen or replace uh, components. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff, as you transition from, let's say the craft into, uh, you know, an inspection zone of the universe, you know, into one of those roles as an inspector or a foreman or whatever, and you start dealing with this, it's a lot of reading and understanding and getting into the contract and, you know, playing Scooby-Doo mystery hour as you try and ferret out a lot of this information that's going to help you. Okay. I can do this. They'll accept this. Nope. I got to do this, this, this. There's a lot of these things that won't be contained in the code. It'll be contained elsewhere in other documentation where your company said, yeah, we're going to do that or nope, we're not going to do that. So that's what this is telling us. Exactly. And uh, the next one kind of also going through here, we got flange warped and tilt. This is for like built-up girders um, where the flange either either it sucks down um, and it's kind of droopy on either end or it's got a – you welded all of one side. You didn't sequence your welds for one to pull on the other. Like you had two welders welding on the same time opposite one another, and you got a tilt to it. So here it gives you uh, – guidance on uh on what your offsets allowed to be yeah and like i said we're not gonna dive too deep into this stuff because it would just be an effort and futility so correct where are we going to now pete Uh, to weld profiles 
Yeah, we could be on Weld Profiles. I think that would be a good spot. I think we beat that dead horse enough with the the warpage and whatnot. Um, Weld Profiles. Okay. So 523 is Weld Profiles. All welds shall meet the visual acceptance criteria of Table 6.1 and 9.16 and shall be free from cracks, overlaps, and unacceptable profile discontinuities exhibited in figures 5.4, table 5.8, and table 5.9, except as otherwise allowed in 5.23.1, 23.2, and 23.3. So this is going to kick us into these tables. And here it's telling us, you know, fillet welds, we get, you know, a couple of caveats that tell us what the acceptance criteria are there. Uh, 5.23.2 is telling us exceptions for intermittent fillet welds because intermittent fillet welds kind of run on a different program. Um, and then 523.3 is groove welds, and that's got a different set of tables. So you want to run with this, Pete? What do you got? Sure. Um, so just so, I mean, it's uh, like for, for the 2020, it's 8.1 and 10.15 for the, the tables, and figures are all 7. Uh, but otherwise, all the numbers are the same. We're going to uh, the first one we got is fillet welds. And it says the faces of fillets can be slightly convex, flat, or slightly concave. So this this is a this can be a big problem. What is slightly? There's ways we measure things and that's I mean we're using our fillet weld gauges. As long as we look like one of the figures in there and we're allowed by the the, uh, the sizing of, of any of those tables, 7, 8, 7, 9, 8, 1, 10, 15, um, we're okay. I mean, you, we can have uh, concave fillet welds are can be acceptable if we still meet fillet weld size and it's not like a big deep trench. The same thing can be said for slightly convex. Have a little bit of a belly and we still meet our weld size with our leg lengths. It's still fine. But you take any of these to the extreme and we're going to have a problem. The hard part is, is unless you have some tools to measure it, um, it's hard to argue what the word slightly means. Right. And this gets back to common sense and dealing with your inspector and just having been around the, well, skill of the craft. You At some point, you I mean, this gives you a a general idea, but it also gives the the umpire in this situation, the inspector, gives him a little room and discretion to to vary the strike zone a little bit. I mean, it can't be completely out of control, but, you know, different inspectors are going to have different strike zones as far as what they're going to find acceptable. And that's just one of the, one of the, the things you're going to have to deal with in the welding trade. It's not exactly. all people are the same, but they should be, you know, operating off the, the same page for the most part. Correct. Correct. Um, we do get uh, an exception for intermittent fillet welds. Um, the the ends of those uh, outside their effective length, the the profile requirements are are loosened up for those. I think that's mainly geared because if you're putting an intermittent fillet weld on something, you know what? Honestly, it probably doesn't see a whole lot of stress. And that is, I believe, one of the reasons why we get a partial hall pass for what the what the start and the stop looks like 
for those. Yeah, like you say, if you're putting an intermittent fillet weld on there, odds are that it's just holding something in place. It's not the super stressed main beam that's holding everything. The whole thing's going to collapse if this thing doesn't get welded correctly. And not Correct. to not to downplay intermittent fillet welds, but odds are, if you're not welding, giving it a full weld, you're just holding that thing together so it doesn't come apart. So did we cover? Where do we leave off here? Do flush we got groove welds. We okay, got, groove uh, welds. This is reinforcement. So here it has groove weld reinforcement. It has to comply with tables 7, 8, and 7, 9. Uh, and it has some provisions below. And here it says welds shall have a – this is another kind of, I mean, feely word is a gradual transition – to the plane of the base metal surface. Well, we don't have a we don't have a value for that. It it doesn't say all it says is is our our weld can't have reinforcement that exceeds a value from those tables and a gradual transition. So uh, and this is common in American codes where we have uh, we mandate a maximum uh, reinforcement height. But we don't have uh, the intra-angle between the base metal and the toe of the weld. Uh, there are some European standards that actually do that the, the more the obtuse the angle, the bigger the angle or the more shallow uh, approach, the, uh, they, they call it a class. Like a, a class 90 or a class 100 would be for fatigue-sensitive items. And I remember... Uh, dealing with wind towers and it was what's a class 90 wind tower well we had a rude awakening of what a class 90 wind tower was it was uh until we got better on how uh making the uh the welds and the weld profile improved there was a lot of grind and that was a uh, trial by fire on that one but so we have uh moving down we got some uh, flush surfaces so now flush doesn't mean grind the heck of the base metal uh that is one thing flush does not mean but uh we need to well grind the the reinforcement uh from the from the weld to be flush to it by no more than a 30 seconds in height and blend smoothly to me blend smoothly gradual transition that's kind of a skill of the craft uh for most applications uh, moving into some more oddball items or cyclically loaded things, that's where we may, you may need to start having a little more procedures, whatnot, to where it can be handled uh, effectively, especially without rework. Well, and I'm going to jump in here on gradual transition. It's like one of those Supreme Court cases back in the day where um, the guy, they were trying to, dis I think it was with Jerry uh, Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint over Hustler or whatever. And the guy said something to the effect, one of the Supreme Court guys are, said that I don't have a definition of pornography, but I know it when I see it. And gradual transition to me kind of falls into that category. I don't really have a, a quantifiable empirical definition of what gradual transition is, but I know it when I see it and I know it when I don't see it. So that's kind of what, with gradual transition, it gets back to skill of the craft and then also skill of the inspector to be able to look at it and say, no, nah, dude, that's not gradual transition. That that's not, you didn't even get it. You didn't even get the ball over the plate. You hit the freaking mascot with the ball. 
You know what e- I mean? Exactly, exactly. And a lot of time where you have flush uh, surfaces, uh, there, there are some other uh, high fatigue kind of things, but a lot of time is it's flush is because some other component might sit there where you have a welded uh, case or uh, a box or something and another component has to live there. So the let's say like a pump or something has to bolt down. And if you try bolting down this cast iron pump and you got a big weld bead running right down the center, when you suck down those four bolts on each ear, you're going to crack an ear off or something. So that's like an example where like a flush surface would be. That's, um, that's, a, that's a good example. And uh, finish methods and values, uh, that's 723.32. That would go oh, if you're grinding for, or you're sanding or prepping the surface. Uh, not just for flush surfaces, but it, this would be more for appearance or specific function. Fatigue is what I mainly have dealt with, uh, where uh, building subsea pipelines, we had to heat, hit different fatigue curves. And basically, we got it by, we had finish values we had to hit. And we would use different grits to, depending on what um, value we needed here. You know, like it says in here, you know, grinding or machining. You know, generally, if you're going to machine something, you have a specific target that you're trying to hit. So, you know, it's it's giving you some numbers there for, you know, 250 micro inches or 125 micro inches. It's giving you a target. So this is a very specific target you're trying to hit for very specific situations. Correct. And and the way I've I've measured these a couple ways. Uh, one of them is a little more subjective. You can get these little plates that are uh, different roughness values by different processes. And you basically put your finger on them and you feel it. Then you go and you feel the part and you go back. And you, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's kind of it's subjective. You're not testing a big portion of it. Um, they do make little machines that also go through and they will also uh, look at the, the value of it as well. Uh, RMS is a common... Uh, value that's uh some some value in rms is the, what's what's used to measure roughness i've done both there's a time and place for both it can uh it can be a little painful and you will learn a lot about different abrasives when you're trying to go down this road for meeting these requirements uh, effectively uh, shelf bars that's basically when you got a weld uh, primarily in the 2G position and you got uh, something you're welding on and it's basically catching the, the bottom half of your uh, right below the bottom uh, weld toe and that's what it's for uh, here it's basically saying they can only be left for statically loaded members if you have that on something cyclical that's basically just made a, a perfect crack zone for it um, technique for plug and slot welds okay plug welds the technique used to make Plug welds when using SMAW, GMAW, except for GMAWS, and FCAW shall be as follows. So it goes in and gives you, you know, for for flat welds, it's going to tell you exactly how to do it, the motion you're going to follow, you know, the arc shall be moved to the periphery of the hole, blah, 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 blah. So it tells you how to do these for flat, vertical position, overhead position, and it also gives you the instructions for slot welds. I'm not going to read through all these. Do you have anything you need to throw in here, Pete? Um, I would just say before you say, oh, I can just read this once and go do it. 
practice, make a couple of these. You'll be surprised what happens when you cut them on a bandsaw, and you'll see what you see. So uh, while this is this is good instructions to to follow, uh, practicing in actual underneath the hood, making this happen is will make will will make these instructions make sense. Uh, and one one uh, thing, though not for plug and slot welds, it does tie in perfectly to our next section, though is repairs is is misplaced holes uh people want to repair misplaced holes just like a s plug and slot weld um while that may or may not be possible we'll we'll get into that in detail in a little bit 525 repairs um the removal of weld metal or portions of the base metal may be done by machining, grinding, chipping, or gouging. It shall be done in such a manner that the adjacent weld metal or base metal is not nicked or gouged. Oxygen gouging shall only be permitted for use on as-rolled steels. Unacceptable portions of the weld shall be removed without substantial removal of the base metal. The surfaces shall be cleaned thoroughly before welding. The weld metal shall be deposited to compensate for any deficiency in size so that's just basically telling you if there's something that needs to be fixed then you got to chip it out of there chew it out of there remove it by whatever method is acceptable to your contract and or engineer or your company's quality plan and then you clean it up and put it back in there and you try not to remove as much of the base metal as possible correct and uh, this thing about the oxygen gouging Oxygen gouging is hot, really hot. It's fast. It's super fast because it's so hot. And when you have an, uh, any material besides as rolled steels, uh, the, the heat can start to affect things. And that's kind of the basis for this limitation here. So there, there is a rationale for it, um, which I, I, I can stomach um, – Thou shalt not kind of rules better when I understand what will happen if I break them. And that's that's kind of the the reasoning for there. And like you said, Gary, uh, however, however you want to remove it for, for the most part it is up to you. And that's basically what the contractor option basically talks about is uh, removing it, replacing it. Um, and if you do uh, repair it. Here we have rules about how much uh, or what we have to fix here. So if we have excess convexity, re reinforcement, overlap, it has to get removed. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, depending on how bad it is and how big of a weld it is, normally it comes down to big grinders. Um, I do know uh, a, a friend of mine worked at a company and this – uh, excess convexity or excess reinforcement, um, they had a much tighter tolerance and, than what D11 ran. And the reason they did it is because they didn't want people to make oversized welds and cost them more money. So they always made the welder always grind everything down tighter. But that's, uh, I guess, another way to learn how to make sure you got your welds right the right size. Uh, the same thing with conca excess concavity or craters or undersized welds or undercutting. Basically, if you have a hole, the only way you can make it better is you've got to fill it back up. 
So you got to add additional weld metal to that. I was going to say, though, under contractor's options, one of the key things there is um, the repaired or replaced weld shall be retested by the method originally used and the same technique and quality acceptance criteria shall be applied. So that's what's telling us is if you um, found the, a defect with an x-ray and then you chewed it out of there, you can't come back and then just say, well, we're going to visually and mag particle this and call it good. No, if you found the the defect with ultrasonic, you got to fix it and then um, retest it with the ultrasonic and the same acceptance criteria. You can't you can't switch games. You know you can't switch criteria in the middle of the the game here. So that's just one of the things you need to understand about that. That's a whatever test method, non-destructive test method you use to find the defect, you got to retest with that after you fixed it. So uh, that, That's a good point, Gary. I completely missed that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, so if we found it through, I mean, any, uh, the, the only mandated inspection in the code is is visual with uh, the, everything else is mandated by contract. And so, yeah, you're right. If the contract says you got to inspect it by whatever method, and you found it, you got to repair it by that and reinspect it. Good catch there, Gary. Yeah, and then we've got um, cracks in weld or base metals. The extent of the crack shall be ascertained by the use of acid etching, MTPT, or other equally positive means. The crack in the sound metal to two inches beyond the end of the crack shall be removed and re-welded. So that tells you how to chase cracks in the weld or the base metal. So you can't just go to the end of the crack and call it good. You got to chew out a significant amount of um, material after the end of the crack. And this is this is put in there because this code's been around for a number of years, and this is practical experience. And I'm sure somebody's got mathematics to back this little caveat up. But if you're chasing cracks, you got to go two inches beyond. Correct. Yeah. Because what what could also happen is the the crack can become really fine and you can no longer see it. Um, that's uh, that's also some of the guidance on it. Yeah, and then uh, let's see localized heat repair temperature limitations. Members distort. This is 525.2. Members distorted by welding shall be straightened by mechanical means or application of a limited amount of localized heat. The temperature of heated areas as measured by approved methods shall not exceed 1100 for quenched and tempered steel nor 1200 for other steels. The BART to be heated for straightening shall be substantially free of stress and other external forces except those stresses resulting from mechanical straightening. So this is just giving you a target here. You know, if you're quenched and tempered steels, you don't want to get above 1100 degrees and then you don't want to get above 1200 degrees F for other materials because there's those are two temperatures where without getting too heavily into metallurgy, you, you get above those temperatures and the game changes on stresses and what you're doing to the material and softening it. And I mean, we could have 15 hours worth of talks on what happens metallurgically with steels when you punch through 11 and 1200 degrees. Correct. And another one I'd throw in there that you may not think about as for quench and tempered is your TMPC steels. Um, I'd be careful about heating those up real hot as well. And uh, this is also uh, one guidance put on this is if you can do this somewhere where it's a little dark and a little shady, it's a lot easier to tell when you're getting stuff hot than if you're out in the sun. Uh, red hot steel is hard to, hard, to, hard to read color in the sun. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, you could you you have a chance of severely impacting the microstructure and the mechanical properties of the material if you're trying to do this out in the the hot sun and you know trying to find that that sweet spot in regards to the color. Um, Correct. Lots of temp sticks. Yeah, um, five twenty three or five twenty five three. Excuse me. Um, engineer's approval. Prior approval of the engineer shall be obtained for repairs to base metal other than those required by 514. Repair of major or delayed cracks, repairs, but to ESW and E electro gas welding with internal defects or for a revised design to compensate for deficiencies, the engineer shall be notified before weld members are cut apart. So you got to go talk to the engineer on some of this stuff. If it's just an absolute abject disaster and a mess, get the engineer involved and let him know, especially with if you're repairing electro slag and electro gas welding before you start chopping in there, let him know what you're doing and get a plan. Um, yeah. So um, like, I want to say with like the first couple months after I got out of school, this last sentence, the engineer shall be notified before welded members are cut apart. And there was a shop that they, they, they had a train wreck and they basically had an eight foot weld that was horrendous. And the plate was long, so they basically said, we're just going to flip these end for end. And I was, I mean, a young, very green engineer. I was like, oh, you need to submit a whole plan for this, blah, 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 blah. My boss, the engineering manager, was like, no, just cut it apart and flip it end for end and we could care less. So that was something kind of a learned uh, thing. And sometimes, even though the code definitely says it right here, we may need to kind of use some common sense on that. I was going to say too, on in regards to repairs, I worked for a place um, when I was out in Washington. We did a bunch of um, work for the federal government, um, getting rid of uh, chemical demilitarization, like, you know, nerve gas, nerve agent. We made machines that and tanks and this whole system for getting rid of those. Anyways, um, this outfit, they had a log and it was the engine, I was the welding engineer, and we had a log, and it was the the repair log. So anytime we'd repair welds on this stuff, I'd go out, take a look at it, look at the failed x-ray. You know, we had an ND, a level 3 NDE guy who would say, yep, it's failed, and I'd be like, all right, we got to fix it. It's not his job to tell him how to fix it. That was my job. So anyways, I had a log of all the repairs. So then you could keep track of, oh, that w- repair got closed. You know, and we had a process for, you know, I'd, I'd tell them, okay, you're going to grind out from here to here. You're going to do this, 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 and this. And we had a little repair plan so that we could, you know, track it. Oh, that repair never got done. All right. Or what happened to that repair? You guys never gave me the paperwork back on that. And it doesn't have to be anything elaborate, but a lot of times it's just a sheet and a um, Excel spreadsheet and a Word document. And you got 10 or 12 lines on the Word document explaining, you know, okay, where the repair is, what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And you give it a number and there you go. And especially if you're doing a large volume of work through a shop, a lot of times, you know, doing a little extra bookkeeping and on stuff like this can save you a lot of trouble later on. So anyways, thoughts from the peanut gallery. Yep. No, I agree. Uh, we did the same thing on pipelines, uh, where repairs were at, who did what, when, when it occurred. Um, I definitely agree. Inaccessibility of unacceptable welds. If after an unacceptable weld has been made, work performed 
which has rendered that inaccessible or has created a new condition that make the correction of the unacceptable oil dangerous or ineffectual. Then the original conditions shall be restored by removing the welds and members or both before the corrections are made. If this is not done, the deficiency shall be compensated for by additional work performed conforming to an approved revised design. What this basically says is this is going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of time. If making things in subassemblies is great, however, you should you need to have each subassembly signed off for, inspected, blessed, whatever it needs to happen before it goes into the next part, where all of a sudden you have like 20 things welded up, and for some reason, some weld is unacceptable for whatever reason, and now you got to start cutting a bunch of stuff apart to get to it to repair it that that can that can a lot of time a lot of money associated with that so try not to put yourself in that situation yeah other and you know and if you can't get in there it's telling you it's got to be compensated by additional work whatever that entails or a revised design so that sounds like a lot more money and time and effort so like he's saying don't put yourself in that situation okay here we go Welded uh, restoration of base metal with mislocated holes, 525.5 and 725.5 in the 2020 version. All right. So we, we started to touch on this earlier um, for plug-in slots. But here, it for, this is for mislocated holes. Basically what that is, you drilled a hole in the wrong spot. There was an up and a down, and somehow you got the down and the up confused or the right and the left, and you punched a hole in the wrong place. How do you fix it? Uh, a lot of times it can just be left open or you put a bolt and you tighten it up. Uh, what the bolt does is it produces a compressive stress around the hole. Sometimes it's all you need. There are other times when you got to weld it up. And on welding it up, we could have a couple different reasons why we need to have it welded up. One could be appearance. There is no structural benefit. It could be fine if it was an open hole, but... I just don't want a hole there or maybe it's corrosion or a non-structural reason. A lot of people will use the plug welding method because it's cheap and it's fast to weld up the hole. However, what you don't do is you don't get a through thickness strength from it or in the, your, your tensile usually across the weld isn't as great as the original base material. So there's sometimes when a plug-in slot kind of repair is unacceptable as a welded repair. And that'll come in when we need to have intention zones is where all of a sudden we got to start doing a lot of times what they call like a boat repair where you weld up half of it. You put a plug in, you weld up half of it, then you go and you gouge out the other half and you weld it back up and you have an elongated boat that's, in the direction of, uh, of tension it takes a lot of time on a thick flange, uh, but it's the way to get full guaranteed strength back. And through here, the, the engineer has to approve the plan. You have to uh, WPS, you got to use uh, the NDT to approve the, the material was good. Uh, a lot of times that's, could be UT, RT, followed by something beyond visual as a, as your surface NDE. 
Um, and then if we go in, if we throw another wrench in there where we got quenched and tempered, there's other mainly heat input, which rolls into our, our WPS or maybe even pulseful heat treat has to get thrown in there. So depending on what kind of structure you're building or what kind of widget, and depending on where this hole is, this hole could be a major hole of time and money. Um, or it could be simple as I could care less. There's another hole there doesn't do anything but whenever you have one you need to get the engineer to approve what you're doing with it that's uh that's critical and here we even have for quench and temper materials we have test what you have to do I and mean, we do some side bends some sharpies or do section uh like i said all of a sudden this hole uh because we didn't measure twice or look at the print and we did something from memory uh, this is now like a $5,000 endeavor. So a simple hole can become a huge vacuum of time and money. Oh, yeah. And especially when you start, you know, throwing in post-weld heat treatment or Sharpies and all this stuff. And then engineering time. You definitely do not want your engineer, if you got to get an engineer from out, you know, out of the company, you don't want me billing against your job, me and Pete, if we're in the company, because our billing rate is going to chew up your your costs on that job in a big, big way. So like Pete said, this drilling a hole in the wrong spot on this stuff, it goes from being, you know, oops, uh, that's not a $10 fix. That's five, $10,000, depending on how, how ugly it gets, how much you got to argue with the client, how much, yeah, it, it can just spiral out of control. So like you said, you know, measure twice or three times and on the holes and make sure you get them in the right spot. So ugly. Well, let's talk about peening, Pete. 526. I've never dealt with. So peening I've dealt with a couple times. Um, it was more, it was well, twofold. One was on cast iron stuff, which is a different rodeo completely. The other one was called ultrasonic peening, um, which is a little different. And we'll cover that. I'll, I'll tell you that story in a minute. But basically peening is... Peening puts a compressive stress into the surface of the weld. It could also be this. It doesn't have to be like the. It could also be as you're welding, you you peen to uh, relieve stress. Now in the code, it basically says you can't do it on the on the root pass or on the surface layer, uh, or the base metal at the edges of the weld. Except it does have some guidance in there for tubulars. All right. The the reason for not doing it on the root is. If you're whacking it and you're and you're you're hitting it with a good a good hammer or uh, chisel, you're 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 you could crack the root because it's not the ligament is pretty thin. Um, you get the root in, you get a hot pass. Um, all right, now now we're starting to have some metal in there. You can start whacking on. And the reason you don't do it on the cap is it that's that's your final and you're mainly doing visual. Uh, or even if you're doing mag or uh, or something else, it can obscure cracks. So that's that's the two reasons why we can't do it on the root and the cap. Uh, edges of the base metal is kind of the same reason of hiding cracks, except as what uh, 1023 or 102363 is. Um, so that's why we can't do it and when you're using just normal chipping hammers and chisels or your normal uh, needle scaler that's not doing peening P 
peening is whenever you actually see like, wow, that's like a dent. I mean, that's like you grab a ball peen hammer and you start whacking on things. That's going to be considered peening. The the times I ran also, and the other one was ultrasonic peening, is the – and you would do this uh, – it was a big tool, kind of kind of somewhat looked like a small jackhammer. And instead of pounding you to death, it had this little head that moved at, at an ultra, ultrasonic. So it was super fast. And you would do it at the toes of the wells to increase uh, the fatigue category because uh, you're putting a compressive stress in and, and preventing cracks from starting to grow. And it, it is used. Uh, it's used on mainly cyclical structures uh, on more of a rehab type scenario where you want to extend the fatigue life on something or uh, some heavy equipment. Um, they use it. I mean, think big like earth movers and stuff. Um, just, uh, one thing you don't want to do is put a bunch of time and money into doing, uh, peening on, on things and then go and, um, hot dip galvanize it because that, uh, that temperature and that hot dip galvanizing will kind of do a stress relief on you and, uh, kind of lose your, uh, compressive stress that you, that you spent a lot of time putting into it. So that's all about I have to say about peening there. All right. And then we move from peening to caulking. Caulking shall be defined as plastic deformation of weld and base metal surfaces by mechanical means to seal or obscure discontinuities. Caulking shall be prohibited for base metals with minimum specified yield strength greater than 50 KSI. I've never dealt with caulking either. No, I, uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't either. Uh, I mean, it's something kind of like peening as well. Um, but it's it's yeah I've I've never dealt with it and it's also I mean basically as we've seen it's prohibited um, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, to say about it but I guess if you're gonna do it you better figure it out with because there's a whole lot of reasons on why you you got to make sure all your inspections are done which isn't a big deal but if you're sitting there deforming the surface. It, extreme deformation of the surface you're increasing your surface area and you're making a lot of sharp ridges uh for coating failures so uh the coating might not grab onto it real well and here it is we got to have it improved by the engineer so i'm sure there's a time and a place for caulking i like i said like you i've personally never dealt with it okay so which brings us to arc strikes 5.28 um, arc strikes. Arc strikes outside the area of permanent welds should be avoided on any base metal. Cracks or blemishes caused by arc strikes shall be ground to a smooth contour and checked to ensure soundness. And this gets this is arc strikes are a big one in any code, not just D1.1. Um, that you can you don't want to be striking an arc outside the um, the weld zone because it can lead to stress concentrations and failures later on because the problem here is that you take a piece of material and you heat it up and basically quench it. So you have this martensitic structure in this material and it's just this place where it's just going to fester and it can cause a crack and depending on the cyclical nature of the loading situation, you can just have all kinds of bad things going on. So that's why it's telling you you know, you got to grind it smooth, take that um, martensitic, the, the martensite isn't going to go very deep into the structure. So you just got to kind of scuff it off, take it down, you know, a little bit, take some meat off, and then have it checked with a 
you know, die penetrant and visual and have somebody, um, an authority, take a look at it and make sure everything's good to go. Thoughts? So, so the pipeline world, this was extremely painful. Um, an arc strike could drive a cutout. And it wasn't just an arc strike from the electrode. You could have an arc strike from a ground clamp. So what we would do is we would basically grind, or I'll, I'll call, I'm saying grind, but it was more uh, like of sanding out the indication. Then we would normally check it by acid etch to make sure that it etched completely the same. That means you've got the heat-affected zone gone the, or the, the martensitic area. And then it was either a, a wet mag or, or magnetic particle tested. Uh, dye pen could also work. And then we had thickness checks on top of that because you were making the wall thickness thinner and you had a level that you couldn't go below. So arc strikes can be serious business depending on what industry you're in. Um, here it's basically grind it smooth, make it disappear, and ensure weld soundness. That's that it's sound. Pretty simple. But I wouldn't hold it just to arcs where you're all of a sudden you got the stinger out and you smack something. I'd also check your ground clamps as well. That can be another part where you can also get an arc strike um, occur. Yeah, and you got you just gotta keep track of this and make sure, you know, what materials you're working on, the industry. Um I worked in a foundry up in the northwest and we did some HY80 and HY100 material, which is like submarine hull material, more or less. And anyways, whenever we'd cast something out of that, there was very specific rules on how you had to weld this stuff up and remove it and grind it back flush. And, um, you know, it was basically you had to put in a temper bead to, to deal with the arc strikes. So just be cognizant of what you're welding on and the code and the code requirements and your company requirements on arc strikes because it's a it's a very serious thing um especially like pete was saying in in the pipeline industry an arc strike or even a dent from a backhoe in one of those pipelines man it you might not think it's going to be anything now but two years from now after that thing's had a chance to to gyrate a little in the cyclical nature it, you know you'll have an explosion or something just go very wrong that's why they don't allow arc strikes that's why arc strikes are such a big thing throttled that five lines or four lines of material pretty that that's right now we got a weld cleaning there we got in process cleaning in process cleaning is basically as you're welding how do you clean this and it basically says remove the slag all that has to be removed by brushing or other suitable means it doesn't exactly tell us how we have to do it just make it happen. You could use a needle gun. You could use a chip and hammer. You could use a wire brush. You could use a grinding wheel. You could use your buddy's thumb. I mean, anything to basically get it clean between every pass. Yeah, and this goes back to skill of the craft and being a grown-up and, you know, realizing what the hell you got to do to produce a sound weld can't be leaving slag and dirt and paint and crud in the weld or other deleterious material. So you got to you gotta remove all that stuff before you strike the next arc and start depositing the next layer of weld metal. Correct. Um, cleaning of completed welds. Slag shall be removed from all completed welds in the weld and the adjacent 
base metal shall be cleaned by brushing or other suitable means. Tightly adherent spatter remain after the cleaning operations is acceptable unless it is removed is required for the purpose of NDE. Weld joints shall not be painted until after the welding has been completed and the weld has been accepted. So that's just common courtesy to the weld inspector. Hey, knock all the slag and crud off because he's not going to look at it until you get it cleaned up enough to look at. And if there's spatter and you're going to ultrasound it, you got to bring all that spatter, take all the spatter off. But it, it gets back to just putting out a quality product, you know? Correct. Correct. I, I've always found, uh, found humor when it's like, hey, we need to inspect these wells. Well, they're already painted. Well, does that mean we don't need to inspect them anymore? Uh, I always kind of thought that was a uh, lame cop-out excuse. Um, weld tabs. Okay, weld tabs, 530. 530.1, use of weld tabs. Welds shall be terminated at the end of the joint in a manner that will ensure sound welds. Whenever necessary, this shall be done by the use of weld tabs aligned in such a manner to provide an extension of the joint penetration. So weld tabs, what we're talking about is you have an extra inch or two, you throw a little piece of um, material that is probably similar to what your base material is, but it gives you a start. So you don't actually start and or stop in the weld joint. You, you've got a little extra time there to, you know, get it going and then you're in the weld joint. And then when you're terminating the weld, you go an inch or so after the weld. And then you can come back later on and knock those weld tabs off, clean everything up and life's good. So you know that if you had any crater cracking or any kind of crud in the either the start or the finish of the weld, you've got it outside of your weld. So a lot of times you'll have porosity with 7018, you know, on the start. It might not be a significant amount of porosity, but some sometimes you'll just get a little bit of porosity on that start and let's say a crater crack on the end. So a lot of times a weld tab is, you know, convenient for that. What do you think, Pete? I think they're great training wheels. They work. They work great. I highly recommend them. It allows the arc to, uh, for I mean, multiple processes, the arc to stabilize, and you can start traveling, whether it be sub arc, or you write with uh, I mean, a lot of stick electrodes. They they want to stabilize, and you write how um, the one thing you want have to watch out for is stacking of indications, where. If your starts are always on top of one another, well, each little bit wasn't bad by itself, but all of a sudden you got 10 of them on there. Now you got a big lob of porosity. So they're simple little things. They make life easy. Um, highly recommend them. Um, and what it's then the, the next one where after the use of them, the removal, uh, it says for non-tubular structures, we they, they don't need to be removed unless required by the engineer. I, I don't know a whole lot of places where you could really like leave them. I'm assuming there are uh, places where they would be acceptable. Normally, I've seen them removed uh, on anything I've I've built because one is you got this little chunk of metal hanging out there that's definitely going to grab onto someone if anything. But basically, then the next section is for cyclically, and they have to be removed and basically make the ends nice and smooth. So then the one after that is make them pretty uh, and you have to leave a, a little bit of reinforcement, but not exceeds an eighth of an inch. And you have to have a fared and a slope of one in 10. 
slope in one and ten would be it could be for any measurement system, but basically one inch in ten inches or one micron in ten microns. It's it's basically uh, the definition of a slope, and it, it, it's unitless because it just uses the same units. Not sure what to really add to that there, Gary. What do you think? No, I think you pretty much hit it on there. You know, and a lot of this gets back to with weld tabs, being grown-ups, you know, making it making it look nice, putting that garnish on the, you know, the whatever, the chicken cacciatore that you're bringing out of the oven. I don't know. Draw whatever conclusions you want or meta, use whatever metaphor you want to use. Yeah, it's a, a lot of it's just being an adult and trying to put together a quality product. And tabs, like it says, removable weld tabs for, st- for um, statically loaded. It's not the end of the world, but it looks better. You know, somebody's like, why is that tab there? What's that little piece of metal sticking out? It doesn't take that long to knock these things off, grind them, get the, get the apprentice over there with the really big grinder and give him a little grinder time cleaning this mess up. Oh, exactly. Okay, so that wraps up Clause 5 in 2015 or Clause 7 in 2020 fabrication. But we're going to dive into a little bit. We're going to cover some tables, two or three of these tables that are um, significant. Table 5.1 is allowable atmospheric exposure of low hydrogen. In our, I think I think it was our first podcast or our first episode in fabrication we talked about um, allowable hydrogen and low hydrogen electrodes etc so here you've got SFA 5.1 and then you've got SFA 5.5 so there's a couple of different things you need to look at you just need to make sure that you're using the right table with the right welding wire or um, stick electrodes what you need to do and some of this stuff you know, you've got a half an hour, like if you're using like an E118, you can only have that stuff out of the out of the oven for a half an hour max or, you know, over half an hour to four hour max. You know, you just need to read this chart and um, make sure what you're, what you know what you're working with and, you know, stick to it and have a plan and anything you want to throw in there, Pete? Well, so the pressure vessel guys will understand when you, when you said SFA A51 or but uh, that, that's uh, the pressure vessel world uh, uses a slight modification of the name, but it's otherwise the same as A51 or A55. But yeah, as, as Gary said, have a plan. Don't give a guy a 50 pound box if he can only burn. I mean. 10 rods, 20 rods an hour, because um, you're going to run into a problem. Give people smaller quantities or give them heated quivers where it's it's easy. Then you, some of the stuff you don't even have to worry about anymore. But know, know your maximums. Know your m- amount of times you can uh, rebake. Uh, or just the other option is all this stuff gets thrown into a bin for non-code use, um, which can be its own problem child in the future yeah minimum holding times table five two you can read through that so yeah five. so yes t- table seven two or five two and five three seven three this is all dealing with uh heat treatment uh is where this is how how long you hold something based on its thickness and then there's alternative temperatures which basically means if you're not 
cooking it for as hot as it's supposed to be, you can decrease the amount of temperature, but now you need to hold it for longer periods of time. This is not common in the D1 world or D11 world, so that's just what those tables are. I think we're on, uh, what, 5.474 uh, for repair yeah. of milliduced. So this is actually one, if you're if you're dealing with, especially once you start to get in the heavier materials, and I'll say heavier is probably probably normally about over one inch is you'll start to see more discontinuities in the steel. I mean, we, we, we think of steel being as uh, homogeneous. There's no problems with it. It's not like lumber where you got knots and stuff. Well, once you start getting thick, you do start to have knots or uh, magnesium sulfide uh, or manganese sulfide inclusions where it's it's not normal or you have like some fins and tears uh and this table basically tells you how much of it can you fix before you got to run it up the flagpole and 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 get engineer's approval or do you have to repair it uh so here like if it's a very small discontinuity you don't even need to do anything but this table basically gives you that uh that guidance and then we're going to go to Table five, 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 six, and five, seven. Five, five, and five, six are camber tolerances. We discussed that. It's some math. It'll give you the numbers there. Five, seven is the minimum fillet weld sizes. You can read through that. You know, so, for base metal thicknesses. Correct. And what I'd say on on table seven, seven. This is kind of where the big the big letters giveth and the little the little letters taketh. So really read your footnotes notes on here, and there there are some some wiggle uh, scenarios. So like where you have a minimum fillet weld size. Well, if you're if you have a one inch thick plate and you're uh, welding on there something thin, well there's no point in really making a weld exceed the thickness of the thinner part. That's kind of dumb, unless there's some really valid reason for it. Uh, but make sure make sure you look at your footnotes on this one, and because there are also it throws in there like sickly loaded structures as a footnote that is different than your statically loaded. That's all I really have on table seven seven. Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. Read it. Okay, five eight is weld profiles. Five nine is weld profiles, and this is going to tie into as we jump down to. Figures five four. I'm going to skip over some of this. Um, five two and five three workmanship tolerances. You want to go into that, Peter? We good? I think, uh, like I said, on on those, look at footnotes. Uh, make sure that it's not taking or giving you something, and it's pretty self-explanatory what what you uh, what you can get in here for tolerances, and if you're basically following the the recommended joint uh, designs in the book, they'll kind of have these already incorporated into them. All right. So if we go down to figure five, four, this is where we're getting into the requirements of the weld profiles. So there's a whole slew of these in here, um, different weld profiles. And it's telling you, okay, this one's good. This one's bad, acceptable, unacceptable, desirable. It's telling you what you're looking for. If almost any code you look in, it's going to have this in there or something similar. Well, it's a military code or whatever. It gives you a general idea. Okay, 
you got it all humped up like this, this is bad. Oh, the weld I have looks something like this and we can measure it. All right, this is pretty good. Or we didn't fill up the weld good enough. This is bad. So that's what table or figure five, four is giving you. And it gives you some information on weld profiles for fillets and different joint configurations. Correct. And so when we look at our, our table 7.8, we find what what kind of weld type we have, and then it correlates with the, I mean, the joint type, if we have a butt or a corner or an inside or an outside, a lap or whatever. And it gives us a schedule. And then we come down to that schedule and that schedule, like let's happen, let's take for, for example, um, a corner joint on a, on a groove weld. So that's schedule B. We come down and we, fig- we figure out our thickness of our plate and that'll tell us what our, our minimum, uh, our reinforcement or, or mins and maxes are, and also well, what our uh, convexity or concavity maximum is as well. So that's how we use these. You have to use these two tables in concert, and then you, you look at the figure to get a graphical representation of what your tolerances are. And I think that's, uh, that basically covers, I think, the figures in those uh, tables, doesn't it there, Gary? Yep. That wraps up our adventures in uh, Clause 5 fabrication for the 2015 version of the code or Clause 7 for the 2020 version of the code. We'll move on in the next episode to Clause 6 inspection. Thanks for listening. Hope this podcast was worth listening to we're gonna have more content coming out also if you want to shoot me an email gpacex at gmail.com give me some ideas or maybe there's some questions that you'd like me and pete or me and joel to answer in regards to welding welding codes filler material or any other material joining question that you might think we have a shot in hell of answering anyways thanks for listening take care peace out